the public policy arm, uh, working for a man named Russell Moore, um, uh, a member of ARC, and, and, and certainly delighted to, to continue the worship that we've already started in the Word, uh, uh, particularly with, uh, with the passage that we're going to lift for our consideration this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in the book of Philemon today. Uh, we're continuing uh, what has been, I guess, a hiatus from uh, our uh, journey uh, in the Old Testament. Um, last week, we looked at the book of Colossians, uh, and this week, I wanted to turn our attention uh, to Philemon. If you do not have a Bible, please raise your hand. Yep, that's my son. If you do not have a Bible, please raise your hands. The brothers in the aisle uh, be happy to, to give you one. And if somebody is turning with one of the uh, the Pew Bibles, can you just shout out what page uh, Philemon begins on for those who are who are using um, uh, the Bibles that have been provided? It's page 1,000. Amen. I appreciate that. We're going to be looking at the entire uh, book, which is simply uh, one chapter, if you will, uh, 25 verses. Um, I'm going to ask, if you would, to please stand as we consider the Word of God as I read it for our hearing. Paul's letter to Philemon. When you have it, say amen. You need a minute, say wait a minute. Okay. After First and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, what is Paul's shortest letter? Paul's letter to Philemon, and it reads thusly. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent 
in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you, you're owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, we do thank you for uh, your word, and Father, we ask right now that you meet us in your word by the presence and power of your spirit. Uh, that we would be open to receive what it is that you would have for us to know about you, about ourselves, about Christ. We ask that you would do this for your own glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It is the Apostle Paul. Paul's writings have shaped the foundations of early Christianity. Almost 25% of the New Testament comes to us from Paul's pen or the pen of another whom Paul dictated the Spirit-inspired words to us. His writings not only shaped Christendom in the first century, but his writings continue to shape contemporary Christianity. As Australian theologian Michael Byrd notes, quote, on any given week, Christians read over Paul in their daily devotions in want of spiritual nourishment. Preachers crawl through his letters in search of inspiration. Theologians wrestle with the profundity of his thinking and talk shows inevitably have something to say about his views on women and homosexuality. The Apostle Paul had a pastoral heart for the church, both local and universal. He wrote so that Christians could become better followers of Jesus. And in the contemporary culture where Christianity, that is Christianity in its authentic sense, can no longer be considered the norm, if it ever were the norm. Perhaps Paul's letters become increasingly helpful in such a context that they prepare us to be faithful never-increasing antagonistic world to our faith. The Apostle Paul. In Philippians 3, as Paul is contending with uh, Judaizers and individuals who would uh, seek to distort the true gospel, he reveals some things about himself. Paul says that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, that Saul is actually his Hebrew name. He says that he is a, a good Hebrew. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. I would remind you that once the kingdom split, 
after the reign of Solomon, and Solomon's son, Jeroboam, takes bad advice and decides that he's going to reign and rule even fiercer or harder than his father, the ten kingdoms split and go to the north, and only Benjamin and Judah are left in the south. Paul says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, I was a Pharisee. He lets us know in one of his accounts in Acts that he's recounting his dramatic conversion, that he actually sat at the feet of one Pharisee called Gamaliel, the known brother in a particular context. He says that I was zealous for the law. Paul also says that he was a persecutor of the church. You remember that it was Saul in Acts 7 who served as the bellhop watching over the coats as they stoned Stephen. And as Pastor T once preached a sermon once about whether the gospel could convert a terrorist, he was referring to the uh, Apostle Paul, then known as Saul, you see Saul's radicalization between chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Acts, because in chapter 7, he's just standing holding coats. In chapter 8, Luke lets us know by the power of the Holy Spirit that Paul is ravishing the church. That Paul is going in houses and he's dragging out those who are of the way, as they called it early in Acts, bringing them to trial, bringing them to give a reckoning, an account of why they have followed this silly myth from this little Nazarene man who's no longer exists named Jesus. This is the Apostle Paul. The book of Acts also recounts Paul's missionary journeys, that, that Paul, after his dramatic conversion that he recounts in Acts 9 and he recounts in Acts 22 and Acts 26, that Paul actually goes out and once a persecutor of the gospel, he's now a promoter of the gospel. Shows you the power of this message that we hold. Paul's first missionary journey begins in Acts 13, his second in Acts 15, his third in Acts 18. And while he is planting the gospel, and while he is visiting churches and founding churches, Paul is also cultivating leaders. And as he is doing so, he is writing letters. This is Paul in an attempt to deliver a relief offering to the Christians in Jerusalem. After his third missionary journey, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. And he is awaiting trial at Caesarea for a few years before he appeals his arrest all the way up to Rome. And in Rome, he spends a couple of years under house arrest, and there he writes what are regarded as the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and this little book, Philemon. Without the letters of the Apostle Paul, where would we be? Time does not allow for the mentioning of every substantive theological nugget bequeathed to us from Paul's pen, but rarely do I ever hear someone after their early devotions recounting what they have gleaned from the scriptures. Say, you know, I spent some good time this morning in the book of Philemon. Oh, I learned, I learned so much about the Spirit's work in the gospel as I just sat at the feet and listened to Paul talk about the slave Onesimus. No, we draw our inspiration from elsewhere. Places like Ephesians 1, where Paul writes this very long run-on sentence about what our union in Christ 
means and how it came about and how we have been given the down payment of the Spirit. Or Ephesians 2 talks about us being saved by grace through faith and not by works. Or Ephesians 3 that unpacks the mystery of the gospel, that all along it was God's plan that Jews and Gentiles would be a part of the new covenant. There are many other places that we go to hear Paul speak to us. Philemon is not one of those places. Church fathers of centuries ago have even asked, subtly and gently questioning the canon itself, what in the world is Philemon even doing in the Bible? I want to submit to you that one of the main reasons why I think we avoid this book is because of its context which for the book itself is one of the central points of its content, that is, the reality of slavery in the first century. To that, I want to suggest that unlike any other book, Philemon forces us to come to terms with what is the point of the Bible, the power of the gospel in community, and the implications of that gospel in society. Let's look at the text. As we read, Paul is giving a fairly standard greeting And as this is a prison epistle, Paul is noting that he himself is in prison or he is a prisoner for Christ's sake or because of his faithfulness to Christ and the work of Christ that he's engaged in. But notice how Paul doesn't attribute his imprisonment to those whack unbelievers who are just hating on me. Paul attributes it to the fact that he's tethered to Christ. He acknowledges that his lot is not just due to the immediate circumstances that rendered him in prison, but they are under the sovereignty of God. Notice that the letter is addressed to Philemon. But not only Philemon. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Now, as we read the letter, you heard that this is a very personal appeal. This is a private matter. This is between Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. And Paul has the audacity to write this personal private letter to Philemon, but also reference other people, and not just other people, but the whole church. Sandwiched between Paul's mentioning of other people is this very personal, private matter, which I think speaks to us of the fact that our faith journey, our faith walk, is always a a personal matter, but it's never always a private matter, that our sanctification is going to always be lived out in community. You know, what Paul does, he reminds me of what he does in another place. You remember where Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he, he, in chapter 4, He makes this little weird move. Now, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, I'm writing this to all the saints that are at Philippi. And then in chapter 4, he basically says this. And by the way, tell you, Adia and Synecdoche to stop beefing. These are these two sisters, right, who have some kind of quarrel going on. Now, can you imagine a letter written to a church being read out loud to a church, and Paul is expounding doctrine. He's talking about what Christ has done. And before he closed, he says, oh, by the way, those two sisters in there who can't get along, tell them I said to quit that. 
One of them's probably over here, and the other one's over there, because that's what people do in church when they're not talking to each other. They sit on opposite sides. But Paul points to a very personal matter, and he brings it before the entire community. This is not to suggest that every private matter ought to become public knowledge. Amen. Amen, lights and walls. But it is to suggest that if we are going to become all that God has called us to be in Christ, then we need each other. Usually when I get dressed, I'm putting on a button down. If I miss a particular button, I'm normally not the one to point that out. Sonny has to come up to me and say, you baby, you, you intended to do that? We need other people to point out where we miss it. And I think Paul does this in this particular letter to Philemon because Paul wants this issue to not just be addressed at the personal and private letter, but I think Paul wants us to understand that this has implications for the whole of the Christian community. Now, I don't think that, 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 that Paul's writing of this letter is only for that fact. Because if you recall on last week uh, in the book of Colossians, Onesimus is mentioned there. Onesimus is actually, along with Tychicus, at the end of the book of Colossians, referenced as one of the people who is going to deliver the letter back to the city of Colossae. But Paul takes time to write this additional letter to send it along with Onesimus back to the city of Colossae. Why does Paul take time to do that? What is it about this particular matter that warrants its own personal letter? Look at what Paul does as he appeals to Philemon. Paul issues what I call gospel-centered appeals. These are appeals based on an assured confidence in what the gospel has done. So a brief background that we can hear in this particular passage that this is a slave who uh, Philemon had owned, who apparently had escaped or ran away, committed some act of uh, a treason, if you would, against uh, Philemon, his master. He ends up running to Rome, and in running to Rome, he ends up running right into the Apostle Paul. Of all people that he could run into as he's trying to flee, as he's trying to hide, he runs into the Apostle Paul. Paul, of course, being Paul, even if Paul is in prison, he's going to preach to you the gospel, and Onesimus gets saved. Now, one of the things that I think speaks to the, the authenticity of Onesimus' conversion is the fact that if you are a runaway slave, you're not trying to run into a community that's going to know who you are and want to go out and kick it and want to do things together. You know, this isn't cheers. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. No, Onesimus is running away, and he wants to hide in obscurity but the problem is he gets converted, and I think he recognizes that to be connected to Christ is to be connected to Christ's body. So Onesimus has a problem, and he encounters Paul. And I think Paul wants to take extra time to not only work out the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon, but I think Paul wants to do something even more than that. I think Paul wants to make capital of what has become a very, very important case study. 
So Paul makes certain appeals. I think that Paul, Paul's appeals begin in verse 4, where he is telling Philemon about the character of Philemon that he has heard about. Philemon has a faithful reputation. Paul says, I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul says, I've heard about you, Philemon. You, you a good one. He says, you're faithful, you love the saints, you love the Lord. Notice what Paul is doing here. I think this is all genuine, but Paul is using a rhetorical device of persuasion that he's going to draw on later. Because after I point to you and say, I know you're a follower of Jesus, then I can start requiring some things from you, can I? Paul says, I've heard about you, Philemon. You you got a reputation, and I know that you are doing good work there at Colossae, and I appreciate you. You've refreshed my own heart. Paul's laying it on. Paul's like, I'm in prison, but I've been comforted to hear about you, brother. Your love for the saints, I mean, I'm just over here smiling. Now, imagine if this letter was read publicly, Philemon's like, well, you know, you know, what can I say, you know, you know? That's just the Holy Spirit in a brother, you know what I'm saying? You know, you know, you know, what he's done for me, he'll do for you, you know, you know. And I, but Paul is making a gospel-centered appeal by referencing Philemon's reputation. Notice the love ethic that he brings out in these first few verses. Notice the faithfulness. Notice the heart towards the saints. And notice what he does in verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. He opts out of legally demanding Philemon's compliance and roots his appeal in love. It's the same love that he said he has enjoyed hearing about from Philemon, from being comforted by. Notice what Paul is doing. He says, I'm not going to demand it of you. I'm going to make this appeal on the basis of love, the same love that I heard you already had. So, Philemon, this shouldn't be new to you when I'm walking up to. I mean, you've been loving everybody already. I'm just making an appeal on the basis of the love that you've already been displaying, brother. And then notice what Paul does. He reiterates that part B of verse 9, he reiterates who he is. Paul's like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just Paul. I'm just an old man. Oh, by the way, I'm in prison. When I was, uh, when I was younger, we used to, uh, most of my family live in, lives in Alabama. They have a really big family on my father's side. He has about 17 other brothers and sisters. On my mother's side, she got about 10 brothers and sisters. So I, I got cousins I haven't even met yet. But, but we used to go to Alabama often. This is when my grandparents were still living. You know, when I was young, you know, I was being defiant. And, and my, my parents would tell me something like, you know, Stephen, go ahead and get, get, get washed up for dinner. You know, about to have dinner around the table with the family. And, of course, I wouldn't do it, right? You know, you know okay, yeah, no. You know, what kids do. And my grandmother would call me over. And she was old. She was old. She's sitting in a wheelchair, and she'd say, uh, now, 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 baby. And then she'd say this. Now, this is grandmama talking to you. 
What does that mean? I mean, no, think about it. What is that doing in that exchange? I already know that. This is what Paul is doing. Now, 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 now for this is Paul talking to you. I'm old. I'm in prison. I've been faithful. I've got my wounds. And even at that young age, while I was frustrated by what that little exchange was doing, you know, you just said, yes, ma'am. This is grandmama, baby. I know. There's a certain currency that he's drawing on that comes with his years of faithfulness. That's why my, my grandmother was doing the same thing, that I should have been obedient to my parents, but she calls me over and says, now this is grandmama talking to you. Paul reminds Philemon of his status and of his life of faithfulness. He says, I, I, I appeal to you, verse 10, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul employs familial language to underscore the spiritual transformation that has taken place in Onesimus. Onesimus has apparently escaped, fled to Rome, ran into Paul, ended up being saved. Paul says this particular transformation has implications. Paul says, this is my child. Paul says, I, I played a role in his, his conversion. I'm appealing to you on behalf of my child. Formerly, he was useless to you. It's a play on Onesimus' name, which means useful in the Greek. He says, formerly, he was useless to you. Obviously, he's a runaway slave. Philemon is no longer able to capitalize on the capital that he has previously had in Onesimus' person. But Paul says, now he's been converted. Now he's useful to both of us. Verse 12. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Two clauses in this verse for many. The first clause is the only one that matters, and it's not in a positive sense, and I completely understand why. Given the history of slavery in this country, which was in some ways, many ways, rather dissimilar to slavery as regulated under the Mosaic law and slavery in the broader Greco-Roman world, time does not allow for me to unpack the reality of slavery under the Mosaic law and the slavery in the Greco-Roman world. See me afterwards if you want some resources. But passages like these deserve time and attention. Uh, when I was in seminary several years ago, I was in preaching class and... Uh, a brother got up and he preached uh, Philemon. Now, when you're in preaching class, you only got about 10 or 12 minutes to preach a sermon. And it's just, you know, class of 15 students just looking at you like, you know, what you going to do? But he preaches uh, Philemon, and I think he does a decent job, you know, as, you know, as any preacher. You know, it's not the way I would have done it, but, you know, I'm encouraged. And he doesn't say anything about the issue of slavery. That's one of the things that immediately clicks in my mind. Now, I'm the only person of color in this class. And uh, my preaching professor, who I love dearly, we're good friends today, back in Kentucky, he says, oh, you can't preach Philemon without talking about the issue of slavery. Isn't that right, Stephen? Stephen? 
So I'm like, okay, professor. Um, you know, now, now I gotta decide what degree of blackness do I wanna come out with, you know? Should I hit him with Martin or Malcolm? I don't know. But I, I, I think he's right. I think as we talk about biblical interpretation and the fact that we interpret scripture in its historical and grammatical context, and we're doing proper exegesis, we look at language, we look at rhetoric, we look at analogies, and then we look at the historical context. I think the same remains true as you're commending scripture in a particular context. You have to contextualize what it is that you're trying to get across. And because of the particular horrid history of slavery in this particular country, the transatlantic slave trade, 16th through the 19th centuries, I don't think you can approach a text that even and the circumference mentions this issue without at least saying something to it. New Testament scholar Douglas Moose said, it must be said that the silence of the New Testament on the institution of slavery has sometimes been defended on less than convincing basis. Uh, yeah. I've heard things like Paul doesn't condemn the institution because to do so would threaten the order of society and it would have brought chaos to the economy. I think Paul cares about chaos and, 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 and economies. But I've heard people say Paul doesn't condemn the institution because it would have been against the law. Uh, clearly, Paul doesn't care about a law if it uh, a friend, uh, uh, runs afoul of God's law. But I've heard also that Paul doesn't condemn the institution because in the words of one theologian, that's just the way the world was. Or in the words of another theologian, the gospel isn't concerned with societal realities. I want to give some attention to that last reason. Contrarily, I think that the gospel does have something to say about societal realities. And because of that, it is important to Paul that the gospel is first proven to be and do what it is professed to be and do within the Christian community. In other words, I think because Paul is so concerned about the societal realities that this particular issue questions, he must make sure that within the community itself, the gospel is doing what we know it should do. This brings me to the point of the Bible's meta-narrative, the Bible's big story. It is a story produced by, written by, and starring the triune God. That if we were to put this in movie language, God wrote the script, God produced the story, and it's all about God. Well, because this is Reformation Sunday, to put it in Calvin's words, this whole earth is a theater for God's glory. And that for God's own purposes, the New Testament in particular, tells a story that for his own purposes, he has chosen to display his glory by redeeming a fallen creation and reconciling said creation back to himself. The New Testament in particular gives the indicatives of how that redemption has been accomplished and the imperatives of how that redemption gets actualized in the life of a transformed people. I want to put it another way. The New Testament is about the establishment of a divine kingdom in and among a divine citizenry as they live under the order of that kingdom and as they commend that kingdom and as they await the final arrival and realization of that kingdom. It is within this 
redemptive framework that I want to understand Paul as sending Onesimus back to Philemon. Or to put it even more simply than that, look at verse 13 and 14. As Paul says, I'm, I'm sending him to you, my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf through my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but your own of your own accord. In other words, Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, Philemon, so that you can demonstrate, so that you can prove, so that you can show that you know Jesus and what you will do based off of what I'm writing to you. In other words, Paul is getting at the fact that there's a particular set of behaviors that he's wanting to see Philemon evidence because of the gospel's work in his own heart. I mean, we know this. We know that, that if any man be in Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Or as people in my old church context used to say, thank God I'm not who I used to be. And I'm not all that I shall be. But Paul is, I think, connecting this for us and showing that this also applies as we analyze the fruit of someone's behavior. Paul says to Onesimus, I'm sending him back. I could have just kept him to me. I could have just done this by myself. But I'm sending him to you so that you can show out of love and demonstrate that you know the Lord. Verses 15 and 16, I think Paul further undermines the, the institution itself. Look at what he says. For this perhaps is why he had parted from you for a while, that you might have had him back forever. Now, that forever, I think, is interesting. Paul says, he came to me. He got saved. I'm sending him back to you. He's departed from you for a while, but perhaps this is the whole reason why, so that he can come to me, get converted. I'm sending him back to you so that you'll have him forever. I don't think Paul is saying so that you can own him as a slave forever. I think the forever there is referencing the spiritual reality that they now share as being brothers in Christ that doesn't end in this temporal life, but extends into eternity. So Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, and now you have him even longer than you previously had him because he's now your brother in the Lord. No longer as a bondservant, verse 16 but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul says, I'm not sending him back to just continue in the status that he was before he left. I'm sending him as a brother. Paul says, I'm sending him uh, back as more than a, a slave. I'm sending him as a brother. And Paul says, I'm expecting you to receive him as such. He's your brother in the Lord. You see that at the end of verse 16? But he's also your brother in the flesh. And what is, what is Paul getting at there? I, I don't think that, that Paul is dropping a paternity test on Philemon. You know, by the way, Philemon, Onesimus is actually your brother, you know. I think he's saying that the spiritual dynamic of their brotherhood in the Lord has fleshly implications. And those fleshly implications does something to the previous status and relationship. 
that if I'm sending someone back who's now your spiritual brother, the fact that he's your spiritual brother has fleshly or this-worldly implications. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, Paul is now transitioning to what I call a, his commending, commending of a propitiatory act or propitiation. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. He's just making it hard, harder and harder on Philemon. Because if you know, even in that context, if slavery is a part of the known world, that there were particular repercussions that a slave would have to submit to after running away. There were certain things that Philemon could rightfully, quote unquote, do to Onesimus, and Paul is just blowing that all up. He says, when he gets there, I want you to receive him as you would receive me. And Paul has already went through it uh, with Philemon. Now, now, now Philemon, I'm Paul. He says, I want you to receive him as if it was me walking back into your home. I want you to look at him as you would look upon me. I want you to treat him as you would treat me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Notice that if there's a particular wrong that Onesimus has done, even as Paul here, I think, subtly but very powerfully critiques the institution itself, Paul does not delegitimize the wrong. That's fascinating. He's blowing Philemon's whole world up. But he says there is a wrong that has been wronged, and if there's a wrong that has been wronged, we're going to deal with it. We're not just going to say, oh, it's cool. If Onesimus wronged you, Philemon... If he owes you anything at all, charge that to my account. Look at verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Notice that Paul is careful to note that he's writing with his own hand. No one is volunteering my account for me. I'm putting up my account on my own accord. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Paul is careful to note that I'm not going to delegitimize the debt. There's a debt, there's a wrong, and that wrong needs to be atoned for. Paul says, put it on my account, and by the way, to give you some assurance, Philemon, nobody is writing this for me. I'm writing this myself. After we move through Paul's, what I think, again, is this subtle undermining and critique of the institution, Paul makes a very gospel, clear gospel analogy. That Onesimus has wronged his master. We don't know this, the particularities of the particular wrong. Maybe he stole something. Maybe it was the labor that was due while he was away. Whatever it was, Onesimus has wronged Philemon. Paul says, I am putting that on my account. Paul says, charge it to me. But not without another reminder. Look at verse 19, part B. To say nothing of your own me, even your own self. So here we learn that not only has Paul played a role in Onesimus' conversion, Paul has also played a role in Philemon's conversion. So Paul is subtly hinting at this fact. Philemon, you've been wronged. You mad. 
Oh, you mad now? You mad. But Onesimus came to me. I preached the gospel to him. He got saved. And oh, by the way, you wouldn't even be a Christian. You wouldn't even be leading the church, or the church wouldn't be meeting in your house. You wouldn't have all of those attributes that I spent a few verses going over at the beginning of this letter. None of that would be true about you. You owe me your life. But if he owes you anything, I'll pay it. Verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. In chapter 4 of his famous work, and some of you have heard me reference this, The Cross of Christ, John Stott expounds on what he calls the problem of forgiveness. And I love this so much because he clearly states it. The obstacle, he says, quote, the obstacle to forgiveness is neither our sin alone nor our guilt alone, but the divine reaction in love and wrath toward guilty sinners. For although indeed God is love, yet we have to remember that his love is a holy love, Stott says. Love which yearns over sinners while at the same time refusing to condone their sin. How then could God express his holy love? His love in forgiving sinners without compromising his holiness and his holiness in judging sinners without frustrating his love. Confronted by human evil, how could God be true to himself as holy love? He goes on to say, on the cross, divine mercy and justice were equally expressed and eternally reconciled. God's holy love was satisfied. I love the tension that Stott builds here because Stott is, is, is literally reflecting the fact that if there was a divine dilemma, that if God himself found himself in a conundrum, in a catch-22, it would be this right here. Because God says, I have these attributes, and in order for me to be fully true to myself, I have to flex all of my attributes perfectly. I can't have one attribute out flexing and now shining the other. I'm just good like that. And so the problem of human sin frustrates that because God says, I want to I wanna act out of my love, but I don't want to frustrate my justice. And I want to act out of my justice, but I don't want to frustrate my love. How can I be true to myself? This is a divine existential crisis. John Stott builds this tension and he says the cross of Christ is what satisfies this. This is how God's justice and God's mercy can be both satisfied at the same time time, only to be remedied at the cross of Christ. I think Paul images this for us. I think Paul reflects this. He hints at this. He, he, he makes an analogy out of this in his own dealing with the tension between Philemon and Onesimus. Paul says, look, you own them. We've been dealing with that the whole letter, you know about the rightness of that. But yeah, you owned him. He fleed. He had no right to flee under the institution that, that is slavery. He had no right to flee. He wronged you. But I'm sending him back to you, and I want you two to be reconciled because he's now your spiritual brother. And Paul says the debt that's, that's still left, the, the, the way to totally remedy the tension is I'm going to put myself in between you and him. 
And I want you to place all of that concern about being wronged on my account. This is what Jesus does for us. The German monk who started a, a ruckus in 1517 by nailing some stuff on some doors in Germany. He says of this letter, we are all Onesimus. He's making a plural out of Onesimus. He said, this is, this is all that the Christian is. He says, this is all that we are. We are individuals who have become estranged from our owner, rightly so, our owner, that is, sinned against a holy and righteous God and desperately in need of what Paul calls a mediator or someone to give propitiation or to assuage God's wrath on our behalf so that we can be reconciled to our Father. This is what, what Christ does for us. Look at Paul's closing. He says, look, I'm confident of your obedience. What a statement. Look, Philemon, I know we can talk about this all day, but look, you're going to do what I ask you to do. Right? You know, you know, you know, let's, let's not just spend, you know, come on, you know. Confidence of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than what I say. Paul's going for the jugular. I think this letter is more powerful than what we give it credit for. Paul is not in this particular context. He's working within a redemptive historical context. He's not concerned with the state power. He's concerned with the gospel's power. He's not concerned with man's kingdom. He's concerned with God's kingdom. And he says, if I make sure that we are reckoning right the gospel on this particular issue, this is why I think it, that he wrote this as a separate letter. Not to say that Paul was concerned about this particular issue of and against other issues, and there were many in the Greco-Roman world, but I think here he had a perfect case study. He had someone in Philemon who I could draw off of his reputation. He had a runaway slave who had turned into a Christian. Paul says, I got to write this letter. And I think we need to interpret, I just broke this podium, I think we need to interpret Paul's writing of this letter. Stop laughing, I broke it. Paul's writing of this letter in conjunction with everything else he says in the New Testament about slaves. Because notice this, in the book of Colossians now, again, Onesimus is delivering both of these letters with Tychicus. He's delivering Colossians and he's delivering Philemon to the church at Colossae. And in the book of Colossians, Paul does what he does in Ephesians. He goes the whole household cold route. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, be fair to your slaves. Can you imagine Onesimus holding these two letters? He's like, um, Paul, I, th I think we got a dilemma. Because this one letter to Philemon, I'm liking. This other letter that you have me bringing back, it seems to contradict what you're saying here in Philemon. I don't think it contradicts at all. I think that what Paul is referencing in Colossians and what he references in Ephesians is the same thing that's true for all of us. You do know that no matter what your lot is in life, you're still called to be faithful. This is one of the things that liberation theology gets wrong. Even if in an oppressed state, you're still a sinner against a holy and righteous God. And I give that truth graciously and sensitively as I commend the gospel and understand the horrors around the world. But everybody has offended God. So Paul says, in other places, even 
if that's your lot, you're called to be faithful, but don't worry, slave. I'm going to deal with the master and remind the master that he too has a master. And if he's not honest with you, if he doesn't treat you right, he's going to have to give an account for that. Paul, again, he's dealing within a gospel context. I know what you're going to do even more than what I say, verse 22. Oh, by the way, Philemon, I might be rolling through myself. Yeah, I might be stopping by. Yeah, I might be stopping by. Paul's under Roman imprisonment. He's hopeful that he's going to be acquitted. Uh, Church tradition says he actually is acquitted for a couple of years. He ends up back uh, under imprisonment. In the space of time that he's out, he writes 1 Timothy and Titus. He gets arrested again. He writes 2 Timothy. And you notice the end of 2 Timothy. Paul kind of knows that this is the end of the line for him. But here, Paul is letting Philemon know, I might be back. I know you're going to do even more than what I say. At the same time, though, just to be sure, prepare a guest room for me. I'm hoping that through your prayers, ooh, look at Paul. I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you, because I know you're praying for me, Philemon, to come and stop by and, and check in on my dear brother Onesimus. He better not be a slave. That's Paul. That's Paul for you. By the way, I got some homies with me, Epaphras. They say, what's up? Mark, Aristotle. He's got his boys with him. He's like, look, everybody's saying, what's up? Let me, let me notice this before I bring it to a close and as I hold this podium. So basically... Look, in my opinion, there, there has been an unnecessarily lengthy, and some of you have heard this as well, debate concerning how to protect the beauty and the substance of the gospel that we just talked about, while not being seen to ignore what many call the implications of said gospel. There's been a debate within conservative evangelicalism about how do you balance the two? How do you show a gospel-centered concern for the ills of any particular society, as sin not only manifests itself in the personal heart, but in structures and systems as well. How, how do you make sure that you do not put things out of balance? To the question of whether or not social justice ought be regarded as, quote, integral, integral to the gospel or, quote, an implication of the gospel, I opine it's an integral implication meaning that the technology of the gospel, and by the technology of the gospel, I'm referring to the gospel simply doing what it does, that the gospel and by the power of the Spirit regenerating a human heart, that by the grace of God, an individual being given faith to play Jesus, being justified on the basis of that, being seen as righteous because of Christ's righteousness being imputed, all of that good stuff. I call that all the technology of the gospel, doing what it does on the life of the believer, and in groups of believers, that gospel ought naturally eventuate in the giving of gospel-centered attention to the ills that plague our society and our world. And I don't see the two as incompatible. I see them as very much so compatible. 
I think in the words of one theologian, Paul here sets a ticking time bomb next to the institution of slavery. And it is a tragedy that the Lord's church, or the so-called the Lord's church, took so long to recognize what was in the very pages of Scripture itself. And even in many cases, used passages of Scripture, this particular book included, to further try to legitimize the institution. How do you read what the Spirit is saying here and conclude, after all that Paul goes through, that he's affirming this institution. I think what Paul is doing here is that he's showing that this institution, like Peter's activities in Galatians 2, are out of step with the gospel. And certainly not ought be true among individuals who are believers in Christ. And when Paul and the scriptures make a moral judgment on something that Christians ought not do, then that means we have moral capital to commend that ethic to the world, does it not? Let me end on this note. I want to turn to Revelation chapter 21. We'll just read this and end. You know, there's a lot of, of horrible things going on in the world today, literally across the world. And as we commend the gospel out of faithfulness to Matthew 28, and in light of Matthew 22, I, I think that the great commandment has to be tethered to the great commission. I think that what we're giving is a word of remedy for the sin that, yes, exists in individual human hearts and in need of reconciliation, but also extends to society and culture as a whole. As a matter of fact, is it not Paul who says that the whole earth is groaning in birth pangs, awaiting the revealing of the sons of God? But look at what John the Revelator tells us here in chapter 21. I just want to read the first four verses, and we'll close. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice thrown, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I think in the kingdom community that God has inaugurated even now and as we await the consummation of that kingdom, we give evidence of the fact that that's a future hope. And it doesn't, doesn't just consist of hymns and Bible studies. I think some people think that the eternal kingdom is just going to be one big hymn fest. Hymn 328, one more time, folks. No, I think God is after something even more radical than that. I think God is trying to, as Colossians tells us, he's trying to reconcile all things to himself. This is the end product of the gospel that we live in, profess, even now. Let's be faithful to live this out in all of its facets and implications. Because I think that's what Paul is teaching us in Philemon. Let's pray. Father, we do, we do thank you for your word. Oh, Father, how amazing it is to see 
that after the death and resurrection of our Savior, you have this small band of people, these unlearned men, as commentators looked on and said of them, but they were literally able to turn the world upside down. And Father, that's not because of any attribute to be found in them, but that is because of the power of the message that they proclaimed. Father, what a blessing it is to be recipients of that message that has been handed down faithfully to us. May we be faithful to hand it even further on and down ourselves. Father, this message of hope and reconciliation that, that you have provided a way that sinful humanity can be reconciled and redeemed back to you, that you, even in your plan of redemption, has a plan. you have a plan not just for individuals, but for this whole world. Father, may we be bold in proclaiming that. May we be bold in demonstrating, even now, your heart for brokenness, your heart of compassion, Father, may we not be guilty of commending a malnourished gospel, but a gospel that is as robust as the scriptures speak of it as, that is able to reconcile and remedy slave to slave master in any other relationship that needs reconciliation. Father, that in Christ, none of those statuses matter, that we all have to come the same way by grace through faith, Father, may we live in that power. May we be emboldened by that power. And Father, may we be good stewards of that. May our lives reflect and give us a reputation, as Paul speaks of Philemon, that, that we have love for the saints, we have love for Jesus, and that that is overflowing out of our lives and out of this community. And people see that we are concerned about brokenness wherever it may be found, and it, yes, begins in the human heart. Father, make us faithful. We ask that again that you would do this for your wonderful, matchless glory and for our temporal and eternal good. And Father, we ask all these things in the power of the Spirit, in Christ, to the glory of you, the Father. Amen.